You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now where we're going to be today, verse 15, 16 and 17. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now we have discussed Paul's purpose for writing this chapter, that there was a type of false teaching that was circulating that was causing the church to become very concerned. The word that Paul uses is uh, shaken, um, alarmed over truth concerning the second coming of Jesus. And Paul wants to reaffirm, reestablish this church in the truth of what is going to happen. So he draws their attention to the fact that uh, Jesus has not come yet. Jesus is not necessarily about to come yet because there are things that have to happen first. And he um, tells them not to be deceived, not to be shaken, not to be alarmed, that these things are coming. And he begins to describe a time of rebellion, a time of apostasy, a time of deceit, when Satan will empower a, uh, a plan of his... To deceive this world. And he will use an individual. A man of lawlessness. A man who in other parts of scripture is called an antichrist. Who will come on the scene. Who will teach things that are contrary to the things that we've celebrated already together this morning. And he will seek to lead people astray into that. Um, And it will be very effective and very powerful. uh, Because it is motivated by Satan. But it will only be effective in the lives and hearts of those that have already rejected the gospel, meaning that Satan accomplishes nothing in regards to his deception. 
He simply deceives people who are already being deceived. That God's people remain firm, they stand fast, they persevere, they make it to the end. And so we have been using this time to learn about the Antichrist, but learning about him in the context that he's already defeated, that he ultimately has no real power, that it's, this passage ultimately points us to Christ. It, it informs us of the Antichrist, but it points us to Christ. The fact that he will show up and put an end to this great evil plan. And he will put an end to it almost effortlessly. So we've celebrated Christ, hopefully, in talking about the Antichrist. And so we come to the end of this chapter now. And I really believe that we can see that our verses for today, um, in conjunction with our verses last week, really serve as bookends for this chapter. That Paul begins this chapter talking about not being deceived, not being alarmed, not being shaken. And then he gives them solid foundational truths to stand upon here at the end of this chapter. Reasons that they should not be alarmed, reasons they should not be shaken, reasons they should not be deceived. Last week in 13 and 14, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers stand firm. Last week, we looked at the fact that our salvation results in God's glory, that Paul thanks God for these people's salvation, that he sees their salvation as a work of God, not ultimately a decision that they make. He doesn't praise these people for being wise enough to see that they were making a good decision to follow Jesus. He praises God that God worked in their heart, opened their eyes, regenerated them through the Holy Spirit so that they were drawn to salvation. We said our salvation flows from God's love. He gives thanks to God for the brothers that are beloved by the Lord. We said it's a love that we can't possibly understand that motivates this. God loves us while we're enemies. He loves us while we're in rebellion. We also highlighted the fact that the words that, that Paul uses here really shows that it's a love that was previously reserved for Old Testament Israel. That the wordage here is applied to God's people in the Old Testament. And we now see that the church is brought into God's people in the New Testament. And so the same wordage used for Israel in the Old Testament is now applied to these Gentile believers. They have this special covenantal love that God bestowed upon Israel in the Old Testament. And it provides or should provide comfort to these people that they are beloved by Yahweh. That they are loved by the one true God. We said that our salvation reflects God's plan, that he chose them for this. And, and we kind of, we highlighted some key elements of the doctrine of election last week without delving too much into it. I tried to give you some caution in knowing how to understand that doctrine better. I tried to give you some caution in, in not going too far with that doctrine and making it do things that it was not meant to do. It is a doctrine of hope and encouragement that our salvation rests on God and his faithfulness and not our own faithfulness to him. Um, it rests on the work that he does in our life, not the things that we accomplish in our life. Um, and so every time that doctrine is used, it's, point to, it's pointed to show us that God is totally different than who we are. That he has plans and ways that are above our plans and ways. And that thankfully his faithfulness is far more consistent than our faithfulness. Um, and Paul draws upon that doctrine of election when he says 
uh, he's chosen you for this, and he uses it as a means of encouragement to this church, that, that they have been chosen for this, and they can rest assured in this time of, of trouble that is coming that they will persevere through it. Because, um, number four from last week, our salvation includes God's holiness, that God doesn't just save us from sin, he saves us to make us holy. So he works sanctification in our life, our uh, passage tells us, through the working of the Holy Spirit. We also highlighted the fact that while it is a work of God, that it does demand our response. That people previously in this chapter are going to be held accountable because they did not believe the truth of the gospel. So anytime our election views, our understanding of election doctrine, if it moves us in a direction to where it removes human responsibility, then it's done something that it was never intended to do. That these people in verses 1 through 12 are held accountable because they did not choose to believe the truth. And so we have to understand that while God has ordained this, chosen this, done all the work necessary for it, there's still an, an element of responsibility that we have to put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, God assures that that will happen. He sets the environment. He sets the details so that that's the only choice we would make, that it's the only logical decision for us, that when our eyes are open to the gospel, when the Holy Spirit has done that work inside of us, we choose exactly what God wanted us to choose. So we freely choose just as God ordained we would. Um, and so there's tension there in Scripture, sovereignty, human responsibility. Um, and so we have to try to maintain balance in understanding those doctrines. And then lastly, we said that our salvation ensures our glory, that we will make it to the end. And so our application from last week is that we can be sure of our salvation and that we can be encouraged as we share our salvation with others. That there are still more to be saved and more that will be saved. Now, as we look at 15, 16, and 17 today, some initial thoughts that I wrote down um, as I began to study this passage. Number one, our human reaction to hearing that our salvation is secure, that God is in control, and evil will be destroyed. Our human reaction to all that information, that, that everything is taken care of on our behalf, that we don't have to worry, that, that Christ is in control, that uh, we're going to make it to the end. Our human reaction would be, great. Let's relax. Let's take it easy. Like you've just assured me that we make it. You just showed me the end. You just gave me the ending of the story. I don't have to worry anymore. And that's exactly the opposite of what Paul's reaction is to those truths. He doesn't give them those truths and then say, hey, now chill out until all that stuff happens. Chill out knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to take care of you. No, he gives them strong, strong warning to stand firm and to hold to the traditions that he's taught them. See, our human reaction when we hear sovereignty, once, we, once we're okay with that concept, once we start to realize that, yes, the Bible does talk about election and predestination, and we have to wrestle with what does that mean, but once we start to, to let some of that in, the temptation is to just kind of fall back and say, okay, God does everything. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just a pawn in this. He's going to do whatever he wants to anyways. Why do I have to do anything? So the church's reaction here could have been to say, hey, thanks, Paul, for that bit of information. Now we can just take it easy and relax. And Paul provides that tension that we've talked about. He just laid out the fact that this is going to happen, but then he follows it up with, you better stand firm and hold fast for it to happen, 
So he, right after verse 13 and 14, he provides tension for us again when he says, you still have responsibility in this. Second thing I wrote down is that um, these verses do act as those bookends as we're talking about. The whole discussion on lawlessness and apostasy is to get Paul to what he's wanting to tell us here at the end. He started off by saying, don't be deceived, don't be shaken, don't be alarmed. He even goes so far as to say back in verse 2, by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter. And then in verse 15, he tells us to stand firm, to hold fast to his spoken word and to his letter. So he certainly has in mind what he told them in verse 2. Don't hold to other spoken words that are not true. Don't hold to other letters that may seem to come from us that are not true. You hold fast to our spoken word. You hold fast to our letters. They are based on God's message. So he, he takes what he starts with in chapter 2 and ends with those same thoughts here at the end of chapter 2. Now, a while back, for those of you that were at Mount Gilead in, in main event, a while back we talked about God's immutability, that he doesn't change. And, and we, we talked about a sentence that, that gives us confidence in, in, in God's future reliability. We said that confidence in God's future reliability rests on what? What do we say on his past faithfulness? Okay. So we said that future reliability, that God will do what he says he will do. That relies on our, on our understanding of his past faithfulness. So we said that ultimately we read the old Testament. We should see every story in the old Testament as a, as a, as a pointing of us to how God is faithful always to his people. So story after story, and I've highlighted some for you that we talked about God making a covenant with Abraham, that he's going to bless him, bring the Messiah through him, make a great nation out of him. So every story that we see in the Old Testament that talks about Israel possibly being squashed by somebody and God coming through and saving them, it should point us to the fact that, wow, God keeps his covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham, and then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, he's still keeping that covenant. When, when Pharaoh wants to kill all the, uh, the Israelite boys and essentially stop them from procreating, God steps in and delivers them. When Haman wants to exterminate the Israelites with King Ahasuerus and Esther and that whole story, God steps in, makes sure that Esther's in place to preserve his people. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God is faithful to his people. So as I read the Old Testament, it's not outdated Yes, the New Testament gives us better understanding of what the Old Testament was trying to tell us, but it would be a mistake to just stay in the Old Testament or just the New Testament and only read, only study, only live in the New Testament. Because my confidence in God's future reliability for everything he's telling me he's going to do for me rests in his past faithfulness. I become more assured that he will be faithful to me in the future when I see how faithful he's been in the past. His faithful track record gives me assurance that he will continue to be faithful. But I want to give you another sentence today that, that I think is just as important. So, confidence in future reliability rests in past faithfulness. Confidence in God's future reliability enables present faithfulness while I wait. Confidence in God's future reliability enables present faithfulness for me 
while I wait. That's Paul's point here at the end of this passage. He, he, he points them to the future and says, look how God is going to be faithful to you down the road. He is going to bring you into glory. He is going to make you holy and blameless. He chose you for that. The reaction now is not to just kick back and relax and do whatever you want to. He's, he's saying, because your future can be relied on, you can now really be faithful because you know the end of the story. My confidence in God's future reliability that he will do what he has said he will do enables me to be faithful now. It enables me to resist false teaching. It enables me to respond correctly to trials and temptations because I know God's going to be faithful. I know he's going to bring me into glory. I know he has good intent for me. We talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. God has good intentions for me. He's a good God. He has good, favorable intent for me. And because I can rely on that, because I know about his past faithfulness, it now allows me to be faithful in the present as I wait for that glorious day. So we've got God being faithful in the past helps me to see that God will be faithful in the future. The more I understand his faithfulness in the future, it allows me to be faithful in the present every day that I wait for Jesus to come back. He says, stand firm, hold fast because your eternity is secure. Your eternity is secure. You can be faithful knowing that your faithfulness is not what is going to earn it. It's already taken care of. Avoiding deception. Last week we talked about being saved. That we avoid deception by being in the right group. That we're saved. We're believers of truth. Not people that pleasure in unrighteousness. So we avoid this deception that's coming. This apostasy. This rebellion. This man of lawlessness by being saved. And then secondly this week. We avoid it by standing firm. Standing firm. So in your notes. Number one. And I really couldn't decide how I want to do this outline. So there's three different ways you can look at this outline. The first thing, number one, is that we are to be acceptors of the faith. Acceptors of the faith. We must believe the truth. We accept this faith that we've heard about. This gospel that's been presented to us. We're acceptors of the faith. We must believe the truth. From Paul's perspective, he tells them in these passages, you will stand. You will stand. Now, technically in your notes, these two questions should be under number two. I just realized that. So if you want to draw arrows down, because we're skipping down to number two, because we've already talked about number one last week. We're acceptors of the faith. We believe the truth. Because of that, Paul says, you will stand. You will make it to the end. You will hold fast. But number two, <clears throat> we're to be defenders of the faith. We accept the faith. Once we become Christians, we're now defenders of the faith. We must hold to the truth. Paul's command to us is do stand firm. So it's that tension. You will stand firm. Now stand firm. I know you're going to, but I'm still going to tell you to do it. Stand firm, hold fast. Stand firm, hold fast. Knowing God will save you and knowing evil cannot stop that plan, stabilize yourself, Paul says. Be assured that God has good for you. 
He says, because you know that your, your, your eternity is secure, because you know that no matter how powerful this, this man of lawlessness is, no matter how far-reaching this rebellion is, it will not stop God's plans for your salvation. Stabilize yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Stand firm. Hold fast to these traditions that have been taught to you. He tells them to stand firm, and I think the aspect of holding fast to the traditions that Paul tells us here in verse 15 is how we stand firm. So question number one is how do we stand firm? The answer is by holding to traditions, by holding to traditions. And Paul draws our attention both to oral traditions and to his written traditions, the teachings that he has passed on to them. Verse 15, brothers, stand firm, hold to to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. It's true things that you know about the past, present, and the future. Things that, that we understand from God's word. Paul's instruction is to hold their spiritual ground by keeping a firm grip on truth. Now, as I, as I was studying this, I felt like some commentators put too much authority on the apostles' oral communication and, and wanted to, to lump it into inspired revelation. And there may have been times when um, the apostles, like Paul and Peter, were speaking directly from the Holy Spirit. But what we do know is that God, everything that God has preserved in his word definitely comes from him. Now, I think there were plenty of times when Paul and Peter were preaching in a, in a, similar, context, in a similar context to how me and, and countless others are preaching today, that we are godly men and dwelt by the Holy Spirit that are teaching, but it's fallible teaching, meaning that we are capable of making mistakes. It's not directly from God. We're not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I would say from this that Paul is encouraging them, you hold true to the letters, you hold true to God's word, and you also hold true to the fact that I am teaching you true stuff based on this. So from our context, we would say let's hold firm both to God's word, the the letter, the traditions of the letter, but then let's also hold firm to what is good that comes from other aspects of teaching at Sovereign Hope. So when I teach, when Tyson teaches, when Adam teaches, when we get together in small group settings and there's teaching and encouragement that takes place, you hold to those traditions. Now, remember, we're told uh, previously by Paul, you test everything. You test everything. You hold on to what is good and you discard what is not good. So there's still that responsibility that you have to filter everything that you hear at Sovereign Hope to make sure it lines up with the letter. But Paul is saying you stand firm, you hold fast to the letter and to those that are being faithful to teach that letter to you in discipleship relationships, in large settings like this, small group settings. You hold fast to those good traditions, those good teachings that are flowing out of your local church. Paul says, I was there with you, I taught you, and I've written letters to you that are considered inspired, you hold to those traditions. Now, what are traditions? That's the second question. What are traditions? The answer is it's God's message passed to men. It's God's message passed to men. 
Acts 2.42. Early church, things are starting up. We get a pattern of what they spent their time doing. Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which meant they were hearing the apostles teach, and they were devoting themselves to getting together, talking about it, and trying to apply it. That's where Mount Gilead, for those of us that were at Mount Gilead, that's where our, our whole mindset for small group ministry came from, our 242 groups, because we were to, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We were to devote ourselves to what God's word says, and we're to seek to apply it together in the context of the local church. It's a message that God gives to man. It passes down from God to man. Jude chapter, uh, Jude chapter 1, because there's only one, Verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and they deny our only master and lord jesus christ jude's describing that that uh spirit of antichrist that's already at work people who are distorting perverting and deceiving people by teaching things contrary to the word but he highlights the fact you contend for the faith that was delivered to you a message that was passed along to you we devote ourselves to the apostles teaching a teaching that has been passed to us, First Timothy chapter 6, Paul giving instruction to his disciple, First Timothy 6 verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit <clears throat> entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Again, spirit of Antichrist, people teaching false things. Paul says you hold to that deposit that was given to you, that was entrusted to you, that was passed along to you. Paul's saying hold firm to the traditions. This word tradition, this Greek word tradition means something that has been passed along to you. Second <clears throat> uh, Timothy 1. Verse 8 through 14, Paul picks up the same idea in his second letter to Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he's able to guard it until that day. What was entrusted to me, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you over and over again in the new Testament. The message of the gospel in a simplified sense, but really the message of, of God's salvation plan that extends from Genesis to Revelation. That message 
has been passed down from God to holy men who then passed it down to men who then passed it down to more men who continued to pass it down. And Paul says, you guard it. It was entrusted to you. It's a tradition that's been handed down to you. You guard it. You protect it. You live by it. It's something that's been passed along. Some key elements to what this tradition means here in Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, it's a divine message. It's not just a rumor. It's not just a good story. It's not just good ways to live your life. It's a divine message. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 11 and 12, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's a special man who gets this stuff directly from Jesus. He meets Jesus miraculously on the road. He spends time in the wilderness with Jesus before he begins his ministry. So the passing starts from God to Paul in this context, and now Paul continues to pass it on to other people. But Paul draws our attention to the fact that it's a divine message. It's not his opinion on how to live life. It's not his understanding of the Old Testament. He says, this came directly from God. I didn't get this from some other man. I didn't get this from a Pharisee. Didn't get this from my parents. This came from God. Now I'm passing it on to you, which doesn't make it now not a divine message. It continues to be a divine message that's been passed from Paul to others. So the message that we've received, this letter that we've been going through, it's divine. It's not Paul's opinion about how this church should live. It's a divine message. That's a key element to these traditions that we're to hold to. It's a message that must be passed along. It's a message that must be passed along. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. So Paul's saying, hey, remember the message that I've given to you. I've passed it along to you. I received it. You received it now. You're being saved by it. You're holding fast to it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, I'm simply doing what I got. Somebody passed this message to me. God, I'm passing it to you. You continue to pass it along. Sometimes that word tradition, though, gives us a bad taste in our mouth because we know that uh, there's non-divine traditions that churches hold to. Some of those are very good. Some of those are very helpful. But it's important to remember that man-made traditions, while they can be helpful, sometimes they expire and they're no longer helpful. Ways that the church functions sometimes can be very profitable for that church. But then it kind of loses what it needs to be doing and it's no longer effective. And so we have to update our methods for how we hold fast to the true divine traditions. I'll give you an example. Turn to Mark chapter 7. This is another context where we see the word traditions being used. Mark chapter 7 verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. I'd be in trouble because I ate a lot of times without washing my hands. And and apparently the disciples, you know, they're so busy doing 
work of Christ. And they, they forget to do this here. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. So this was a, a tradition that was added to God's law. Doesn't mean it was a bad thing. Doesn't mean it was an unhelpful thing. It was something that was added to what God had already instructed them to do. Verse 4, and when they came from the marketplace, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So the Pharisees are upset that you're not that the disciples aren't holding to these traditions. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So they're angry about this. They feel like this is worth bringing up. Why are you not doing the way that doing things the way we do them? Verse six. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain. That do they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. I'd love to have been there for how this conversation unfolded, because, I mean, it goes from lighthearted eating to boom. Like these guys show up and say, hey, why aren't y'all doing this right? And and it's almost as though Jesus says, oh, hypocrites. Hey, um, I need to address what you're what you're saying here. I mean, he just throws out words that we would be very cautious about maybe throwing out right away. I mean, he just goes straight for the kill right here. He says, hey, uh, the Old Testament talks about you guys, hypocrites, that that you 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 elevate man's commandments above God's commandments. That they're a type of person who thinks that the traditions of man are worth hanging on to more than the traditions of God. So you're priding yourself on these things that you're doing. But in reality, they're not being effective and they're not doing what they were supposed to do. And you're not being effective in doing what you should be doing. The things that my disciples are doing. So there's certainly a negative aspect to tradition. And then there's the type of tradition that God, through Paul here, calls this church to hold on to. Now, when we started Sovereign Hope and it's written into our philosophy of ministry, one thing that we wanted to commit to do is that we were not going to hang on to anything from a church tradition standpoint that was not profitable and helpful and biblical. That we were going to be very flexible in how we did ministry based on how it met the needs of our people. Meaning, if Sunday school was not going to be profitable for our people, we weren't going to have Sunday school. It's a tradition that's found in in most Baptist churches, which a lot of us come from. Sunday night services is something that's very... Uh, common in the churches that we came from. Those things we have freedom to choose to do or not to do based on whether it's profitable for our people. We sat down and said, it's not profitable for people in our church to have to drive to Sonoy twice in one day. So we're going to have a longer service on Sunday morning, try to accomplish everything that maybe two services would accomplish. That's going to be more profitable for our people. We decided that we wanted to hold to the traditions of the letter and be flexible when it came to how we did ministry in the traditions of men. Paul says, you hold to the traditions of my oral teaching, my written teaching, 
those are the things that cause you to stand firm. And Jesus rebuked elevating any other type of traditions above these. We must be stable in our relationship to Christ where trials, troubles, problems, temptations, false teachings, etc., do not sway us. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, you've got to get to the point where you're standing firm, holding fast to where these things will not shake you, where you will not be deceived. He says, I know it's going to be the case. I know you're not going to be deceived, but you need to stand firm so that you're not. Now, as I was studying this, a question came up in my mind. And I wanted to ask this to you guys this morning. I want you to maybe jot it down and think about it. Am I so anchored? Am I so anchored in that no matter who fell around me, I would remain standing? Are you so anchored in to the traditions of the apostles? Are you so anchored in that no matter who fell around you, you would remain standing? Because here's the fact, the apostasy is coming. The apostasy is coming, and I told you there are going to be people in the church that have been calling themselves Christians for years that will be deceived by this. Potentially people that we love dearly, that we thought were genuine converts that are going to show that they were never really part of us. And it's possible that if we survive until that time, the Thessalonians didn't. But it's possible that we survive to that time when the man of lawlessness does come. This apostasy does happen that people in our church walk away from the faith. And we have to ask ourselves, are we so anchored into the truth of the gospel that my perseverance doesn't rely on somebody else's perseverance? That I'm not following Jesus as long as somebody else in my life is following Jesus. But if they were to ever stop, my faith would crumble. Are we so anchored into these traditions that if Tyson walked away from the faith, that if Adam McLeod walked away from the faith, that it wouldn't shake our faith? That if I walked away from the faith, that your faith would not be shaken? Are we anchored into the truth of the apostles? Are we anchored into people in our lives and their faithfulness? It's an important question to ask if we're really believing that this apostasy is coming. Now, do I believe these individuals are going to walk away from the faith? Absolutely not. I believe they're true Christians. I believe they're going to stand firm and hold fast. I still think they have to stand firm and hold fast, just like Paul says. But I believe that they will. But I can't let my perseverance be contingent on Tyson persevering. It can't be I'll follow Jesus as long as that guy is. But if he ever wavers from the faith, then I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to believe this stuff because it's truth, not because Tyson or anybody else in this church told me to believe it. And some of us are more anchored in than others. And as elders, we're praying about the fact that more of you need to be anchored in than you are. So that we don't have to be as concerned as maybe we are sometimes about your perseverance. Be anchored in, not because we tell you to, but because it's true, because it's true. This idea of stand firm, it's a present imperative, meaning do it continually. Not stand firm when the apostasy shows up. You stand firm now and always. Present imperative. It's a command. We must be on guard because there's a rebellion coming against Christian tradition. I encourage you to read through the armor of God in Ephesians 6. 
There's, there's truth there that we hold on to. That's why it's pictured in the aspect of armor. The way we stand firm is by holding to those traditions of the gospel, righteousness, salvation, important truths that keep us from being struck by the fiery darts of the wicked one. This rebellion is coming. It's already started. Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I mean, these people are, are able to be deceptive because the people in the church loved them. He says, be careful because there's wolves in your church that are going to potentially rise up, twist things, and lead you astray. I would imagine it's got to be people that we respect, people that we love. And our decision to follow Christ is based strictly on them. And so when their faith changes, the faith of these people change. Now, this, this passage is given to elders to make sure this doesn't happen. But I think it's true as well that all of us as flock have to be on guard against wolves. We have to stand firm. We have to be anchored in, not to what an individual is saying, but what God's word has to say. We must do this together as brothers in the context of the local church. Back in 2 Thessalonians, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. This isn't an individual thing. We don't get to isolate ourselves from the local church and say, okay, I'm going to read my Bible, study my Bible, follow Jesus by myself. I'll see you guys at the end when we all get there, but I'm going to be on my own kind of thing. I'm, that's just how I am. That's just who I am kind of thing. No, like it's always supposed to be done in the context of the local church. We, we, we learn scripture together. We wrestle with scripture together. We apply scripture together. It's dangerous to isolate yourself and try to study scripture on your own because that's where mistakes happen. That's where false doctrine happens. Joseph Smith goes off on his own, starts studying and reading and, and listening to, to weird stuff on his own. He comes back with a whole new religion. No checks in his life. That's why I always encourage people when, they're, when, when I'm teaching somebody how to study the Bible, you study it on your own and then you come check what you decided that that verse means with somebody that's more mature than you spiritually to make sure that you got it right. I always tell people that. Don't go study and, and learn things on your own and go off on some weird tangent in some weird direction that nobody's ever been on. Study it, check with somebody and say, is that what this means? Because this is what I'm, I'm feeling like it means. We don't do it on our own. We do it together in the context of the local church. We stand firm. We hold fast to these traditions. Number three in your notes. We must practice the truth. Demonstrators of the faith. Demonstrators of the faith, we must practice the truth. So we accept the faith, we defend the faith, we demonstrate the faith. Paul's prayer here is let them stand firm. He's still providing that tension. Number one, I mean, it's 100% assured, you will stand firm. Number two, stand firm. 
Number three, I'm crying out to God to let you stand firm. Attention there. Why is Paul praying for something that he knows will happen? Because he knows the way that God will make it happen is through answering his prayers. So Paul is crying out faithfully, let these people stand firm. You see this in verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In response to the coming evil, Paul prays that God would do what he has promised to do. Now, before we really get into um, what these two verses mean, I want you to see something that is heavily implied, even though it's not directly discussed in this passage. Okay, and we've highlighted this before in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But in these two verses, Paul attributes the highest status possible to Christ. The way he writes this, he writes it very intentionally to show us that the highest status possible for the man, Jesus Christ, is given to him here. And that's the place of deity. He's put on the same level as God the Father, Yahweh, who would have been very familiar to these people. We know who God is. We've heard about this man, Jesus. Paul always comes back to the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. A couple of ways that he does this. The Greek, war, the Greek word order is such that the pronoun himself, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. The, the way it's actually written in Greek, the Greek word order is such that the pronoun himself applies both to the Son and the Father. Now a pronoun replaces a noun. Right, So he, she, it, we, you, they, those are all pronouns for nouns. Okay, a little English refresher. Okay, so Jesus gets replaced with himself in this verse. God the Father also gets replaced with the word himself. One pronoun for what we would say is, well, that's two different names there. It's one God, one status that Jesus deserves that Jesus has, that we need to recognize. It's the highest status possible for Jesus. He's more than a man. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a good person, more than an example to follow. He's God. He's God in the Old Testament. He's God in the New Testament. Jesus is also mentioned before the Father in the prayer order. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. Now, this is unusual for Paul, but it's not unheard of. In Galatians, if you want to jot these down, Galatians 1.1 1, 1, and 2 Corinthians 13.14, Paul does the same thing. He uses the order interchangeably. You would typically say the more important should be placed first, the one that you're calling upon, and then the next in order would go. But he puts Jesus first. He puts priority on Christ here. He uses one pronoun for both. They're one and the same. God the Father, Jesus, a mystery in the Trinity along with the Holy Spirit, but a truth that's very clearly taught from the very beginnings of Christianity. Some people want to say, eh, Jesus never claimed to be God and the church never believed that until much later on. Nope, from day one. From day one, the church believed Jesus was God. And Paul wrote it in such a way that it was obvious to those reading it. That Jesus is something unique. Jesus is something special. 
the verbs. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The verbs comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. The verbs comfort and establish are singular in structure. Singular in structure with a plural subject. So we would say it's bad grammar unless you're writing about the Trinity. They're distinctly different, Jesus and the Father. They do this thing together, though. They comfort and establish. They do it together. They do it as one. Jesus is God. Now, why is that relevant to our discussion? Because there's, there's one that's coming that's going to claim to be equal with God. He's a man of lawlessness. He comes to deceive. He comes to direct your attention and your worship to him. Paul's saying, don't be deceived by something that's so inferior, so inferior to the one who is God. There's Jesus, and then there's the anti-Jesus. And they're so anti, they don't even deserve to be in the same discussion. One's God, and one is so not. Paul says, don't be deceived by this guy. You follow Jesus, who is God. Now, Paul's prayers to a God who has already loved us and given to us. If you look in um, verse 16 again, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, he's praying for the verse 17. May those two, God, the Father, Jesus, may they comfort your hearts and establish them. But he references back to something that they've already done in the last half of 16, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. <clears throat> now the structure for those two words in the Greek are in the aorist tense. Aorus participles, which means they are definite actions in time. So it's not just that God loved us in general. It means that God loved us at a specific point. doesn't mean that God has just given us eternal comfort and, and good hope. It means he gave it to us at a certain point. So God loved us, which I would say is very clearly should be understood on the cross. God demonstrated his love for us on the cross. So Paul is saying, I'm praying to to Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father who loved us when he demonstrated that through Jesus dying on the cross. And then he gave us eternal comfort and good hope when he called you to salvation in the gospel. So these two things happened at definite points in time. God demonstrated his love on the cross. He gave you eternal comfort and hope when he called you to the gospel and you responded to it and got saved. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. I'm praying to the God who's done those two things in your life and I'm asking him now Verse 17, to comfort your hearts and to establish them in every good work and word. God comforts our hearts inwardly. And then he establishes our actions, our good works and our, and our good spoken word outwardly. He's concerned about the inward and the outward. And all of this, Paul tells us, is by God's grace. He loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Something that we didn't deserve. And yet God bestows his love upon us. He bestows his salvation upon us. He bestows perseverance upon us because of his grace. Because of that love that he has for us. I think it's important to note here too that God ensures that we stand firm. He ensures that our hearts are comforted. That our actions are established by using people to do it. 
He's using Paul in this context to comfort these people's hearts, to establish them in their faith. Paul taught them and he prayed for them. And I believe that God wants to establish us here at Sovereign Hope the same way. That we will make it to the end, but we're not going to make it to the end absent of people participating in each other's lives together. Through passing on the word and the avenue of discipleship. That has to take place so that we do persevere to the end. I want to give you some questions to think about as we close today. These are questions that I was writing down for myself, questions that I believe that we all need to be faithful to answer. Question number one, under the think about it, my ability to stand is linked to my awareness of God's word. My ability to stand is linked to my awareness of God's word. So number one, am I actively taking responsibility for myself in learning the word? In order for you to stand fast to the end, in order for you to be comforted and established in your faith, it's all contingent on your awareness of God's word. Do you understand his past faithfulness? Are you assured of his future reliability? Are those two things enabling you to be faithful right now? It's contingent on how aware you are of God's word. That word hold, it's a tight grip. It implies exertion, work. Are we working to know God's word? Are we doing that intentionally ourselves? Are we taking responsibility ourselves to be in the word, to be studying, to know it? Secondly, are there individuals that I am faithfully receiving instruction from? Am I putting myself in an environment where more mature people are teaching me? Am I recognizing that I am not where I need to be spiritually and I'm seeking out further spiritual direction from individuals in this church that are more mature than me that can help guide me into my decision-making process? Are there individuals that I'm faithfully receiving instruction from? Number three, are there individuals that I can call to stand fast on the things I I've taught them. Too often we come to a local church like this. We expect to have our needs met. We expect to have people pour into us. We expect to learn and grow here because people invest in us. And sometimes we miss the mark in the sense that we are called to be a part of a local church so that we can turn around and invest in others. We've looked at passage after passage today where Paul called individuals to hold to what he taught them. My question is, can you can you point out individuals that may go through a time of struggling and you call upon them to hold to the things that you have personally taught them? Things that you have personally invested into their life. So as they're struggling with something, as they're going through a difficulty, yielding to something. Remember we talked about um, the weak and the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted and those that we have to go to and get in their face. Those that we have to go and encourage. Can we go to individuals in our church and call them to hold fast to things that we have directly taught them? It shouldn't be that we have to go to them and say, hold to the things that Adam's taught you. 
We need more and more connections in our church where there are people saying, hold to the things that I've taught you. It's things that I've learned from somebody else that have been passed to me, and I'm now passing them to you. Now, obviously, we're all going to benefit from, from what God does in my life as I teach every Sunday. So there's still that aspect, hold to what being, what's being taught regularly here at Sovereign Hope. But we need more and more connections in our church where individuals are calling other individuals to hold to the teachings that they are personally passing on, the traditions that they are passing on to those individuals. Do you have individuals in your life that you can say, hold fast, stand firm until the end, you cling to the things that I have passed on to you? Number four, are there individuals that I am teaching that will teach others also? This is the more difficult one. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul says, I'm not ultimately just thinking about you, Timothy, and I'm not ultimately thinking about the people that you're teaching. I'm thinking about the people that your people need to be teaching. And Paul says, my work's not done. My work's not done. So let's take, let's take a real-life example here in Sovereign Hope. Tyson has been meeting with Will for a while now, sometimes more consistently than others, but, but that's part of they're in a C group together. Tyson's his C group leader, so they meet at times for discipleship, accountability, different things. Then Kyle comes to our church. Tyson says, I could meet with Kyle. I could, I could hang out with Kyle. I could teach Kyle things, but, but I don't need to be the one that does that because I've been investing in Will. So I'm going to take Kyle and meet with Kyle and Will for a while with the intention of, Will, you need to start meeting with Kyle regularly. Disciple Kyle. Teach Kyle things. He's got questions. Help him understand more and more. Grow him up more and more in his faith. But really, Tyson's job according to Paul, is not done until Kyle is teaching people. That's when the multiplication process really starts. See, we can kick back and say, well, I'm being faithful. Like, I'm teaching people. Like, some of us that are in discipleship relationships, we can say, man, I'm doing what God's told me to do. I'm making disciples. I'm teaching people. If the people that you're teaching aren't teaching people that are teaching people, you ain't done making disciples yet. You're just simply teaching somebody. The disciple-making process means you are teaching people who can teach people to teach more people. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. That's where we've got to get to. We've got to pass on traditions to each other. So that as God calls new people to our church because they respond, because you know, some of us have made this commitment, we want to be more faithful to share the gospel and by God's grace, I believe we're going to see people respond to that gospel. And they're going to be brought here. And we've got to be faithful to pass traditions onto them because some of them don't know anything. Tyson's talking to a guy at work that says, I've, I've never heard this gospel that you're talking about. So I guarantee you there's a lot of other stuff he's never heard about too that he needs to know if he ever does receive Christ as his Savior. Are you teaching people that are teaching other people? If not, then your job's not done. We've got to get there as a church where this is happening more and more. There's more relationships that this is true about. And then number five, 
Are there individuals that I need to avoid who would seek to shift me in my belief? Now, the other ones are, are proactive. These are things that I need to be doing. This one's reactive. This is something that you identify and say, eh, I, don't, I, I can't have that in my life anymore. Someone who is potentially influencing or teaching you in such a way that it will shift you in your belief. Romans 16, Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. He says, you look out for people that contradict what has been passed on to you. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He says, you avoid them. There are people in your life that are a negative influence that, that say things that shake your faith. You got to get out of there. There may be individuals in your life that you're not strong enough spiritually to handle. Because sometimes we stay around people and we say, well, I'm trying to share the gospel with them. They need Jesus. But you may not be anchored in enough to be the one to give them Jesus. And you might not have to get out of there. Paul says you avoid these type of people. You run from these type of people. Second John 7, 11. Second John verse 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not deceive him. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is not prohibiting you having lost people in your house. It's not prohibiting you talking to Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your house. This is saying you don't affirm and accept and enable people that are false teachers to continue their ministry. You avoid these type of people. Don't fellowship with these type of people. Stay away from these type of people for your own protection. Applications. Applications. First, be comforted. Be comforted. God's plans are motivated by his love. God's plans are motivated by his love. We told in verse 13 that we're beloved by the Lord. We're told in verse 16 that he loved us. God's work of salvation is motivated by his love. Even when others fail you, his love will not fail you. You're going to have discipleship relationships fail you. You're going to have accountability partners fail you. You're going to have things that break down in your life. But the reason we stand firm, the reason that we're anchored in is not because of somebody else's faithfulness to us or to Christ. We're enabled to be faithful now because God loves us and will continue to love us to the end. Lastly, be active. Salvation is true about you if you continue in faithfulness. Salvation is true about you if you continue in faithfulness. That, that tension again, that it will happen, but we have to be responsible in getting there. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says, God has saved you. He reconciled you from this awful past. He's brought you into a a glorious future. It's only true, though, if you stay faithful. Hold fast to the end. Stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that have been passed to you. Tyson's going to come. I'm going to ask you guys to use the time now to reflect on what we've heard over the past couple of weeks here in chapter 2. Paul's given us instruction to be on guard. That there is coming an awful evil that will wreak havoc on this earth. That will bring deception to this earth. That will cause people to be led into further deception. It's generated and motivated by Satan. There's coming a man who will be empowered in ways that we've never seen before. Teaching a message that's destructive to the life-giving gospel that we've grown to love. There's a time coming in the future where this happens. But it would be a mistake to say that this chapter is about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is simply a piece of the puzzle that this this whole chapter is, is pointing us to. It's the fact that Christ, Christ is glorious. Christ is the one that loves us. Christ is the one that is coming to put an end to an evil that will ultimately not affect any of his believers. It's meant to establish us in our faith. As we reflect on the fact that Jesus is truly in control, he's sovereign, he's way more powerful than anything Satan could come up with. But his goal is not just to comfort us, his goal is to push us in a direction of being active where we stand firm. We receive traditions that are passed to us. And then we become faithful in passing those traditions on to others so that others are established in their faith. So I want you to reflect on these truths. I've asked Tyson a couple weeks ago to himself reflect on what we've been learning over the past couple of months and to, um, to teach us through song about these glorious truths that we've, we've read about and discussed together. So we're going to do that now. Um, We're going to spend time just praising Jesus for who he is, for what he's already done in our life, what he's currently doing in our life, and what he will continue to do in our life.